We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum this hour, we talk with Bakari Sellers, attorney and political commentator, who in 2006 was the youngest person to be elected to the South Carolina legislature. In his new memoir, Sellers writes about how his father was shot and wounded at a civil rights protest in 1968, and how he still has to fight for the same things his father did. Then at 9.30, we look at why some of the ways that companies and celebrities are expressing solidarity with protesters is ringing hollow, from corporations posting empty black squares on Instagram to issuing statements to show they're on the right side of history. We examine performative allyship on social media. Join us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Lawyer and political analyst Bakari Sellers says the most important day of his life happened in 1968, before he was even born, when police opened fire on students protesting segregation in South Carolina, killing three black men and wounding his father. Sellers, who became the youngest person elected to the South Carolina legislature at the age of 22, writes about how the trauma of the incident permeated his childhood and his memoir is titled, My Vanishing Country. And while we wait to get Bakari Sellers on the phone, I'll read a little from My Vanishing Country to you. This is from the introduction, Black Country and Proud. I'm from what's called the Low Country in South Carolina, where beauty and blight and history are intertwined. You can drive for 50 miles in any direction and still be on the same grounds where slaves, some of them my not-so-distant ancestors, toiled over cotton, indigo, sugarcane, rice, wheatgrass, and soybeans. Particularly my hometown is Denmark, South Carolina, a place where everybody knew my name, a name I would learn as a child that was colored with honor and infamy. To get to Denmark, which is in Bamberg County, just drive down Highway 321 if you're coming from Columbia, the state capital. You'll pass fields of corn and cotton and flash by acres of swampland creeping over neon green beds of marsh. You'll eventually seem to arrive halfway around the globe in a little slice of Scandinavia, where towns dubbed Norway, Sweden, and finally Denmark appear one after another. The first two are so teeny you'll miss them if you blink. Before them, you'll tick past a chicken farm that always smells of pure uh, expletive (laughs) before you eventually get to Denmark, a community of 3,400 souls, nearly all African-American. And Bakari Sellers is with us now. Thanks so much for joining us. I have uh, 17-month-old twins, and so things don't always uh, go to plan. Oh, I I hear you. I have a 22-month-old, so 
Totally understand. Um, you write about, and I just read a little bit about Denmark, South Carolina. Can you tell us more about where you grew up and why you really wanted to center the rural South and its role in activism throughout your book? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, this is an awesome opportunity, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. Um, for me, Denmark is home, three stoplights and a blinking light. And I wanted to give voice to those forgotten black voices, um, those individuals who poured into me so much. I wanted to debunk and throw on its head many of the notions. When we think about rural America, we usually think about white America. Mm. When we think about working class America, we usually and I just wanted to change those notions. And Denmark means so much, and there aren't really many depictions of what it means to be black in this country and black and from the South. And so um, I think that when people read this book, they'll get a sense of not just pride, um, but they'll also get a sense of understanding. How do you think growing up in the South shaped you? Well, I, I always say um, that it wasn't just growing up in the South per se, but also being the son of the Civil And so that helps frame uh, my context politically, socially, culturally. Um, my father, of course, was um, a member of SNCC. He was in the civil rights movement. And for me, this is just, um, this is an expression. Uh, this is an expression of love. It's a love story to the South. It's a love story to my father. Mm. It's a love story to my mother and all the activists who paved the way, whose shoulders I stand upon. Um, and so my vanishing country, it, it challenges the, the country and challenges many notions, but it's also a love story. Well, tell us about that 1968 Orangeburg massacre at South Carolina State University and, and what happened to your father, Cleveland Sellers, there. So February 8, 1968, the students at South Carolina State were protesting what the history books call the last vestige of discrimination in Little Orangeburg, South Carolina. And, um, you know, they did not foresee what would happen after they began their protest. They did not foresee that uh, 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 officers would close ranks like they did. They did not foresee that they would have shotguns that were loaded with deadly double-eyed buckshots. And for eight seconds, uh, law enforcement officers fired shots into the group of students. Uh, they killed three, Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton. Um, they wounded 28, including my father. All the officers who shot into the students, all eight, nine officers who fired shots were charged. They were all found not guilty. And my father was charged, tried, and convicted of rioting, becoming the first and only one-man riot in the history of this country. I say on that night in justice, it left mothers without their sons. It left the pages of my state's history stained red with blood. And as a part of the trauma of my story, it left my, um, it left my sister born without her father. And uh, my sister was actually born while my father was in prison. Uh, there's a great image um, of my um, mom and dad together. Um, they both have these big afros, and it's a Polaroid picture taken by another inmate. And my father is uh, holding uh, my sister, his uh, oldest and firstborn child, for the first time on the prison yard. And the incident happened 16 years before you were born. You're, you're 35 now. And, of course, as you describe it, I mean, the parallels with George Floyd, a police killing, protests, violent police responses during protests today. And you talk about... You know, how your father's in your 70s, you're in your 30s, and yet you've shared so many experiences. Why does that strike you so hard? Well, it shows that we have to change, that these cycles have to change. Um, 
you know, my father from Emmett Till to Jimmy Lee Jackson to Henry Smith, Samuel Hammond, and Delano Middleton, all the way up uh, to the 16th Street Baptist Church. And, you know, I'm thinking about Breonna Taylor. I'm thinking about Ahmaud Arbery. I'm thinking about George Floyd. And um, I lost my good friend Clemente Pinckney, which I talk about in my vanishing country, um, in the Mother Emanuel Amy Church. And so although I'm only 35 years old, I mean, it's a life that's been bookended by tragedy from Orangeburg to Charleston. And I try to tell that story so that people understand Especially now, the timing is, is fate and the timing is fortuitous to have a book out at this moment. Uh, but it, it outlines the trauma of being a person of color in this country. And I think that we, one of the things we have, one of the biggest problems we have in this country is that we're running an empathy deficit. And the only way that we can fix that is by um, uh, trying to commit ourselves to understanding, which I think most people who read My Vanishing Country will gain, a, gain some up. We're talking with Bakari Sellers, an attorney, CNN political analyst, former South Carolina state representative and author of the new memoir, My Vanishing Country. And I invite you to join the conversation if you have questions for Bakari Sellers or any reactions to what he's saying. The number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. Org. And, and Sellers is with us for this first half hour, so if you do have questions for him, the time to call is now. When you talk about uh, Bakari Sellers outlining the trauma that you have gone through, I mean, a couple things come to mind. One is, is why do you do it? What are you hoping to achieve? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but also just it's got to be exhausting to do that, to relive pain, to communicate your trauma. It is. And, you know, what I tell people is it's an exhausting experience. Um, it's one where I echo the fact that I'm tired often, um, but you have to persevere. Um, you know, I, I mentioned and outlined the names like Marion Barry and Julian Bond, Bob Moses, Kathleen Cleaver. These were the people who were part of my proverbial, it takes a village to raise a child. And um, one of the things that I, I always say is that we can't give up now. Um, we may not have reached that mountaintop, but we cannot give up now. And no matter how tired I get, I always try to persevere and think about them as we push through. You can't give up now. But at the same time, I mean, I watched one of the uh, interviews that you did on CNN where you, you broke down in tears and it was clear to you that you were having a moment. And, and one of the things that you were saying was just that, that, you're fighting to be seen as, as a full human being. What did you mean by that? I mean, I think that it's pretty evident that um, in this country, we have um, individuals who do not give us the benefit of our humanity. Um, and you can't tell me that any, anybody who saw that picture of George Floyd um, saw him as being human. Um, he put a knee to the back of his neck for eight and a half minutes. I don't know anybody else who can do that to another human being. And so when I, when I say that, it's, it's getting, the benefit, <clears throat> getting the benefit of one's humanity, which is very, very difficult um, and many times not given. And so that's my fear as I'm raising uh, black children in this country, uh, that you know, they'll have an Amy Cooper in their life. Um, and if it's not Amy Cooper, they'll have a Chauvin in their life. And that's a very real concern because you know, as a black parent, I have to have conversations with my child that others do not. And I just wanted to, um, especially in, in my vanishing country, I wanted to lay out 
the entire experience, because a lot of times people look at the issue of race through the contours of their lifetime. I wanted to make sure that I provided that necessary historical context. And what's your reaction to President Trump saying that basically the way to improve race relations is a strong economy? Well, that's, you know, I had this discussion with even many progressives that, um, unfortunately, that's not a cure-all. That doesn't fix all the problems we have in this country. Because, you know, countries that are rooted or, or stem from issues of race don't necessarily go away, regardless of how much money one makes. Um, I always look at, and that kind of goes into respectability politics as well. I look at Philando Castile, for example, who did everything that he was supposed to do. He had a awesome took care of so many people, had a concealed weapons permit, um, and he still was gunned down um, because of the color of his skin. Um, and so it, it doesn't even matter. On my own air, I had uh, Omar Jimenez, who was doing his job as a black officer, I mean, excuse me, as a black reporter in Minnesota who was arrested on air. Um, and so that, that doesn't necessarily fix all, but we have to have some level of empathy, and that's what we're absent these days. And that's what you're trying to achieve, a, a, a level of empathy that you feel like is really, really lacking and also what's just driving the treatment of black people in particular, it sounds like you're saying. And not only that, but it's, it's, it's not just about George Floyd. I don't want anybody to think that. Um, and one of the things I do in my vanishing country is I outline these, these systems of yes, oppression. It's not, just, it's not just George Floyd. It's not just criminal justice reform, but it's the fact that in this country, we have food deserts, right? Um, in this country, we have uh, people who can't go two, three miles and get access to uh, uh, healthy fruits and vegetables. Um, how we, uh, some people don't have access to quality care or, for me, very personal issue like uh, African-American female mortality. So you have all of these issues that are, um, that are colliding in the middle of a pandemic. And then we're seeing black bodies that are just killed on the street. And so, um, you know, for me, it's just it's not just George Floyd. It's all of it. And Denmark was in a food desert and also far away from a hospital. So you really have personal experiences with that. And then you also bring up the mortality of black women and, and that terrifying experience that you had of your wife, uh, you know, nearly dying after she gave birth to your twins. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I tell people that I had three really unique experiences with um, our healthcare system in this country. Um, the first is, of course, our hospital closing. Um, the second is my wife um, nearly dying. She lost seven units of blood. Um, in, um, she lost seven units of blood while she was giving birth. Um, it was, it was a, um, you know, it was just a, it was a painful experience um, for me. It was a, it was an experience where I had to be my wife's um, number one. Uh, advocate, chief advocate, yell and scream. I was afraid I was going to lose my wife that day. I truly was. And um, I was fortunate enough. Bakari? Did we lose you there for a second? Well, in the meantime, Bakari, let me take a call. Uh, Lydia from Alameda, California is calling in. Lydia, hi, thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah. And let me um, let me get Lydia on the phone. She has a question for you. Hi, Lydia. 
Hi, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Sellers, for being there, for writing your book. I read you and follow you. And as as a black man and as a black person, I'm not going to ask you what I need to do as a, as a white person, as a white active ally. And I, I'm not going to ask you what I need to do. I don't think it's appropriate. What I want you to know is that what I am trying to educate my white friends and families is about learning about what it means to be white in this world and that whiteness, the foundation of whiteness is racism. And what does that mean? How does that feel? Get into that, that space of, of what it means to be white in this world when there's the systems of white privilege are oppressing so many people. And I just want you to know how much I appreciate you, and we white people have a lot of work to do to make this necessary change. Lydia, thanks. Let me see if I can get a reaction from Bakari Sellers. Bakari Sellers, are you there? I'm worried we may have lost you. While we wait to get him, Lydia, one thing I was curious about in your comment was what you are, what kind of resources or how you're having those conversations with other white people, and do you find that they're effective? Very effective. And one is um, creating affinity groups at your work. We have a white anti-racism affinity group where white people are gathering to talk about these issues, to share resources, share articles, read about black history, Um, be a part of the protests if you can, if you feel safe enough. Um, to interrupt conversations with white people that are um, racist in nature um, and to help educate and to always think about self-care. This is hard work. It's draining. And to always think about self-care, too. But read articles. um, There are books. There's just a plethora of information on the Internet about educating yourself about what you can do. Write your, your politicians, your congresspeople, your senators. Um, local politicians, police departments, um, and and definitely police brutality and mass incarceration. We have to change the police departments. Make sure they're doing their their um, their their bias training, and how often they're doing it, and what the follow up through what follow up is on that. There's so much to do. Well, thank you, Lydia. Noel tweets, are the videos of police abuse of black people another version of the spectacle of lynching? How is that hurting people as well? Bakari well, Sellers, that's a, a really intense question. And, and I, I think I have heard you talk about just what you see as black violent killing as, as kind of like a, a form of porn. Yeah. And so I'm sorry about that. I was trying to join via, via Zoom so everyone could see my um, young Marvin Gaye beard that I have. <laughs> Uh, growing throughout quarantine. Um, but the, the first, let me, let me answer them in order. I mean, I think the first thing to the first uh, caller in this, in this world today, the moment demands that we only have two choices, either you can be racist or anti-racist. Um, and um, it's not good enough to just say, I'm not racist, but while you sit on your sofa, you have to be actively willing to root that out of our, that scourge and cancer out of our culture. And um, I think that requires um, conversation is not necessarily had by me. Um, I may not be the right messenger, but I do think that conversations are necessary. Um, you know, she has to have those conversations with her white colleagues. Um, you know, white friends must talk to other white friends. Um, parents must talk to uh, their kids. You know, Westmore and I, Westmore wrote a, an amazing book entitled The Other Westmore. It was an Oprah book club and New York Times bestseller. We had an opportunity to have a discussion about the conversations that we have with black children. And Wes and I also looked at the camera and said, well, what conversations are white parents having with their children? 
And there has to be a conversation about ensuring that they give my children um, that same respect and that same um, humanity. Um, that's first. And, and second, these videos are, are tough but necessary. Um, people do not change uh, without seeing these visual images because a lot of people do not think they exist. And so, you know, the world changed after it saw Emmett Till. The world changed after it saw the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery shocked the conscience. But I think this is a different moment, although I'm not too hopeful we will have change. But this is a different moment because people saw for eight and a half minutes an officer um, had their knee on a handcuffed man's neck. Um, and, ha and they heard him wail out and call out for his mother who's dead. And, um, you know, it, it's just so much. And so while these, um, while these images are, um, I, I just call them like a black death porn, um, and they become a bit much, I think they're necessary. Mm. For you, in terms of making change, you are an attorney, a political analyst for CNN, you know, former state representative. But it sounds like you have ambitions of getting back into politics and, and you have your eye on Rep. Jim Clyburn's seat. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I have my eye on the 6th Congressional District. I'm always cautious about calling it somebody else's seat. Um, but I, I um, you know, I don't I don't know when that time will come. Um, but I'm excited about it. I look forward to it. Um, you know, for me, it's about uh, giving voice to the voiceless, giving voice to those who are unheard. For me, it's about, um, you know, democracy is participatory. And I'm just really excited about the potential opportunity to get back into politics and try to change and deconstruct systems from within. We spoke earlier about how one of the things that, that you really ruminate on in your book is how much you and your father have shared experiences. And I wonder... You know, you have uh, your twins, you have a teenage daughter. When you're alone in those moments, do you think in your kid's lifetime that they will have to relive the events of your life? Well, that's the, that's the heart of the question, isn't it? I mean, my, my, I have to be hopeful that, that, that I don't pass them down the same America that we live in today. Um, my twins who have uh, attempted to make this interview um, as difficult as possible for me today <laughs> are uh, amazing. They're 17 months old, and all they do is laugh and look at you with these big eyes um, and and pull on you and push each other and love each other. And I have a 15-year-old daughter, and it's just the innocence that they have is um, it's just warming, especially as cold as this world is. And so the answer to your question is, I want my children, as I write in the book, my goal is very simple. I want my children to be free, and I want them to be free to achieve all of the ideals promised to this country that are vanishing, as I write, not just life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but things like love and justice and truth and hope and peace. Um, and I'm going to work as hard as I can to make that a reality, but we have a long way to go. What are you saying to your 15-year-old daughter about this time? She's asking a whole lot of questions. Um, why did they kill George Floyd? Uh, they killed George Floyd because he was a, he was black. It wouldn't happen to a white guy in those same circumstances. Well, what do we do? How do we make sure that it won't happen again? Well, that's why daddy fights. You have to lift up your voice too. Granddaddy was your age when he started. And so we have to make him proud. And uh, 
we just continue to move forward. Pakari Sellers, his new memoir is My Vanishing Country. Thank you so much for talking with us. And thank you so much for bearing with me even through the technical difficulties. Oh, I, I get it. No worries. Thank you. Another half hour forum is next. Stay with us. I'm Mina King. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.